Hey guys, it's Brad. I just have one very quick announcement here. As you know, we've been nearly ad-free for these 275 episodes. We want to keep it that way, but we also want to give back to you guys who have been supporting us. There's a lot of generous donors out there, so we've started a Patreon account, which will allow you to continue to support us on a monthly basis, and in return, we can give back to you. We've already got a few special incentives up there, some merch, some outtakes, and we're going to come up with more as time goes on. So if you've already supported us, thanks tons. Go check it out, patreon.com slash goingofftrack, or you can also get there via links on our website. Hi, welcome to Going Off Track. Hi. How's it going, Brad? It's going it's going great, man. Yeah? I'm, uh, you know, just getting back into it here. Fall. Um, had a good summer. Yeah. How about you? You did a lot of travel. You're, you're about to hit the road again. I am. When this airs, yeah, I'm going to Bali for a yoga retreat, and then I'm visiting uh, my best friend from childhood who lives in Singapore now. For a week. That should be pretty crazy. So it should be cool. So yeah, that trip will have already happened. Listen to this. Um, so check Jonah's Instagram. Yeah, so check on my Instagram. You can see me doing some yoga poses on the beach probably. Uh, yeah, I don't know what my Instagram's going to be like. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to try to like not really be on my phone too much for this, those two weeks. Unplug a little, but I definitely will, I'm sure, post some photos. Nice. Um, so yeah, did some traveling. I spent some time. I went out to... Uh, North and South Carolina this summer, that was fun. Went out to California for a wedding. Went to Cleveland, went on a fishing trip with my dad in Canada. So yeah, I feel like I've I've got I've gotten around this summer. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. You got to. It's what it's for. Yeah. It's what summer's for. Yes. Um and now we're we've moved into fall. Um I was telling you, I don't want to get like into all the details of this whole story cuz it's very long, but me and Brad were talking. I was telling Brad, I met someone recently that I followed on Instagram and didn't know in real life and had this whole dilemma where I was like, and this person was not a celebrity. Right. So I got introduced to this person and then wasn't sure if I should acknowledge it or pretend. But I was like, I was also like, I know a lot about you. I know. (laughs) Like, I was like, yeah, I know you had like a salad yesterday. (laughs) But I, but I also feel like that bringing that up is weird. I just feel like I'm having a lot of issues just dealing with the whole etiquette of like social. And, and then I was like, I, what I sort of have figured out is like, I think the best move, and I didn't get to really get a chance to do this. I think the best move is like acknowledging how weird it is, but doing that in person. I think right. like you don't want to just like send strangers messages or anything. But I think when you meet in person, like you can say like, I'm this not is, a creep. I'm not a creep. Or you can just say like, <laughs> this is, this is weird, right? Like, let's get it. Cause it's like, I think it's weird for everyone. Cause everyone sort of is like, this thing is still like relatively new. Yeah. But I had never experienced that before. So it was very, it was very, very surreal. Um, <laughs> and, but, uh, ended up working out totally fine. Not, not a big deal. Uh, that, I guess that's kind of a boring story, but, uh, you know, I'm just saying, uh, it's a, it's a new time we're living in. Everyone's figuring things out. If I could give you guys one tip about it, um, just like you don't need to be on your phone when you're walking down the sidewalk. Oh God. I, 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 this is something that like, I'm really, I've really tried in the last few months to stop doing because it's so crazy and it's so pervasive and it's like, 
you get off the subway and just going up the stairs, yeah. everyone's, and it's like, it's insane. It's like, yeah. and no one's looking where they're going. Yeah. It's funny. It's funny you bring this up because I was driving up Broadway, like lower Broadway the other day. And I was just, for some reason I was going through my head, like what brought that part of the Broadway looked like, you know, like 20 years ago, like in the nineties. I realized that like, if you were to transplant somebody forward, like that would be the first thing they would notice is not like the architecture changes or clothing, but the fact that every single motherfucker walking down the sidewalk is staring at their palm. Like yeah. it's, it's the physical phenomenon. Yeah. It's the human race. It really does take you out. Like if you watch like an older movie, like a movie from the eighties or <laughs> something and they're like trying to, yeah, like I, I think I was listening to a, like a Joe Rogan podcast with Brian Redband about this recently. They're like, yeah, like the movie's like, we got to find this person. It's like, now you're just like, yeah, let's call him. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it really has changed like the whole culture and the whole way people interact. And I think in some ways it's good and in some ways it is really is not so good. Well, hopefully there'll be some sort of etiquette worked out with, or I guess just an interface that's plugged directly into your brain. I just think, yeah, but I still think it'll be the same. Like, I think people just won't be paying attention. Like, I just think people in general are just not considerate of other people. Yeah. And I think that everyone thinks like they're in this bubble and like, they're kind of like the world revolves around them. And I think it's understandable why you would think that because like that is your experience of the world. But I also think it's important to understand that like everyone thinks that. And (laughs) if you just can sort of like make room for other people and sort of like just be compassionate and like understand other people trying to like live their lives too, it can make just everything just go so much better. Yeah. It's not, Be aware. it's really not that hard. You're not Be aware. the only one in the world. Be present. That really is, a, that is, that, that'll go a long way towards making your life better. What's that? Just realize that you're not the only person. Yeah. On you're not the only planet. person. Be aware. Be present. Take it in. Uh, look up. Um, there's a lot to see. <laughs> Anyways, that's, uh, that's our rant for today. Today we have, it kind of actually goes hand in hand with today's podcast. Very exciting guest, uh, Craig Wedren. You may know him from Shudder to Think. Um, he has a new, uh, solo record, his first solo record since 2011, um, which, uh, just came out this month. Uh, it is called, uh, adult desire. And he also just did the music for, uh, what had American summer 10 years later. I believe he did the music for glow. I mean, he's done Craig obviously was in, you know, DC, very famous discord, DC post hardcore band shutter to think solo artist and he has done songs for velvet goldmine school of rock anchorman reno 911 don't touch trust the bitch in apartment 23 hung what had american summer what american summer day camp glow in the united states of tara Wait, did he do for the original what had american yes summer? and he did the original because oh, um, he yeah he grew up with we talked about this he grew up with david wayne in cleveland oh um, so he's been collaborating with him since like they were in middle school <laughs> uh and the craziest part about the story we talk about this too is my mom worked at the Jewish Community Center in Cleveland with like Craig's aunt. So my mom would always be like this woman like this woman I work with at JCC her like nephew is in some band and I was like a oh, cool like I'm sure this like 
the woman at like the JCC. Yeah. Like, I'm sure this is a cool band, whatever. Right. Like, I was so dismissive about it. <laughs> and then at one point, like, I was like reading a zine. And I was like, Shudder to think this sounds familiar. And now, now I realize they're like this totally legendary band. <laughs> like, that's like so credible. And as this insane, we get into the whole story of the band and how they signed to a major label. And I mean, they toured with like Pearl Jam and they did all these massive tours. No, I remember the hype, crit- dude. They yeah. were like greeted as the new Beatles. Yeah, they were. And they, so it's a crazy story. We get into that. We get into how Craig started doing music for films. And now Craig does this really cool kind of chanting stuff um, that you explored. And it's like he actually did a video at the Discord house um, of him doing this chanting thing. You can see it on YouTube. But yeah, Craig's doing tons of cool stuff. He lives in L.A. now, lived in New York forever. Um, and uh yeah, I'm so glad we finally made this happen. I had never met him in person, but I had literally been hearing about Craig for like seriously like 20 years. <laughs> so this was really cool. He could not have been nicer, could not have been a better guest. And let's just get into it right now with Shudder to Thanks, Craig Wedren. It's like who, what, what kind of, what do you, what do you guys, who do you usually, like what types of people do you have? So mostly musicians and comedians. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah. And it's, uh, I used to write this TV, TV show for Fuse called Stephen's Untitled Rock Show. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, does Fuse still exist? It does exist, but they don't really do a lot of music right. stuff. So when it, that show got canceled, me and the host started doing this podcast mm-hmm. like five years ago. He's not here today, but, um, but yeah, so we have like mostly like comedians, musicians, cool. that kind of stuff. And we just kind of ramble on different Good. topics. I like rambling. Yeah. But, a specialty of mine. <laughs> Well, so this is crazy. Uh, I'm from Cleveland. You are? Yeah. Where are you from? I'm f- I'm from Moreland Hills. Uh huh. And my dad went to Shaker. And my what's your dad's what's your last name? Bayer. Mm-hmm. And my mom worked at the JCC with your aunt Carol. I was going to say I only know Jewish people in Bayer. I don't know if that's a Jewish name. It is apparently. <laughs> but I w- when I was growing up, my mom she went to JCC with Aunt Carol and probably my mom Bonnie. Okay. Bonnie Marks and Carol Paul. Yeah. I'll be with them in Rehoboth in two days. Well, tell them my mom says hi, okay. Carolyn. Carolyn Bear? Yeah. Oh my and God, I love that. when I was growing up, my mom was always like, yeah, Carol, Carol's uh, nephew's in this band, Shudder to Think. Uh-huh. And I was like, I was like, oh, this is like my mom's friend's son. It's yeah, supposed yeah, to be like, yeah, totally. not You're a cool like, band. Yeah, and I was like into like <laughs> punk and hardcore. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, whatever. And then that, I rem- that doesn't sound punk. Well, yeah. it kind of sounds punk. I don't know what it sounds and like. And then I remember like seeing something and Nazine and being like, this band's on Discord? <laughs> this is insane. Uh, that, um... That's a great story. <laughs> My mom still works at JCC. Really? Yeah. yeah I went to... It's in Beachwood now. They okay. Moved. I went to Annisfield. I went to like travel camp. I did all uh-huh. the JCC camps. Nice. So you... You didn't go to Camp Wise, did you? I did not go to Camp Wise. Okay. But you went to Shaker? No, I went to US. You went to US. And then I went to Hawken for a minute. Okay. And uh, David Wayne went to Shaker. Okay. Well, we 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 all went to US and then um, couldn't deal with it anymore at a certain point. Gotcha. After a certain point. And US was all guys school, right? US was all boys. Yes. And it was very um, traditional. Right. Probably an excellent education. And it definitely gave me something to fully rebel against. It was like the man incarnate. So, you know, I, I probably have more to thank than to curse. So how did you uh, how did you and David meet? Were you guys hanging out at Coventry? No, uh, I think we met. At, I think we met at Park Synagogue Day Camp. Okay, um, that's my I, I, the way I remember it. My, I mean, we were four something, five. 
And um, my mother, uh, Bonnie, Bonnie Wedren, then Wedren, now Bonnie Marks, she was the the head of the swimming of swimming at Park Day Camp. And again, the way that I remember it, so I'm Wedren, he's Wayne, and so our cubbies and lockers would have been next to each other. But I've also heard that maybe our moms were friends. And so that's how we okay. came to be. But it was super young, like before before your memory is set. A thing that I learned, because I have a nine-year-old, is that you your whole memory resets at age seven. I think it was six, three, six, seven. There, there's some age after there's some age before which you can't you have no actual memories only like what people tell you and so when david and i met would have been before probably my actual real memories are okay so i only have i only have like hearsay (laughs) um but that's how we met and then you know and and actually the reason i'm here in new york right now is because our third best friend a guy named Stuart blumberg who um who's a screenwriter co-wrote the movie um the last lisa chelodenko movie what's it called kids are all right okay um he he and david were best friends since literally the second they were born and so i was sort of the late comer into it but we're here i'm here in new york because he's getting married oh nice so all roads lead back to shaker (laughs) um so how did so how did you sort of end up in did you go to NYU with those guys, or how did you end up in D.C.? So I ended up in D.C. because my dad, my parents divorced when I was four or five, something like that. And I was actually born in New York, New York City, lived here for a few years. Parents broke up. They were both from Ohio. My dad was in Columbus, but then moved to D.C. in the early 80s because he found and bought this sort of White Castle-esque hamburger chain called little tavern anybody any any like dc baltimore no no any beltway people here (laughs) so um they had incredible locations and it had sort of fallen on hard times a lot of you know like bulletproof glass and homeless people getting cheap burgers there all the time um my dad found it fell in love with it he was a lawyer had nothing to do with the restaurant business um, bought this restaurant and moved to D.C. in 81, 82, something like that. And um, that was just around when I was starting to get into, when all of our friends were starting to get into punk and, you know, new wave, sort of like, quote-unquote, our music. Um, and so it was perfect timing because it was just when Discord and the whole D.C. hardcore scene was kind of finding its own thing or imprinting on america and the world and so i would go visit my dad and there were these really weird much cooler than me and my friends from cleveland ohio kind of punk rock guys and girls and um when i finally got fed up with cleveland literally ran away um and decided i was going to move in with my dad i was about 15 maybe 16 years old and so for junior and senior year of high school i went to dc um and was in and out of bands kicked out i sing weird 
didn't really go with the whole hardcore thing that was happening then. But emo in the in the original sort of sense of the word, the rites of spring, um, you know, hard on a hard on right, a plate. Right. Um, leave everything on the stage and slightly psychedelic or spiritual. Um, you know, it was. The, the the whole hardcore thing, the the rigidity of it was starting to become much more porous and strange. Um, so I moved to D.C. in 11th grade. A guy who had gone to my high school in D.C. but was now graduated, whose girlfriend still went to the school and was in plays with me, was like, hey... My boyfriend's in this band and they just lost their singer who had to go to college. They're looking for a singer. Here's a tape. And it was, um, and it was this, you know, screamy, hardcore music. I was like, okay, because I had just been kicked out of a band. And so I joined it and it became Shudder to Think. And that was like the whole, the, the, the strange, the strange smush of it. And then I went to, then I wound up going to NYU with David Wayne. And then it all kind of came together. So you would go visit your dad and you'd see, like, Right to Spring play? No, I missed it. Okay. I mean, I, I would go visit my dad and and be, like, outside the window <laughs> of the place where cool people were seeing that's him. That's so close to anyone I know. <laughs> yeah. So that's still impressive. No, I mean, I definitely... Although, although I did go see... I went to this great show. I was 12, 13, maybe. I was visiting my dad for the summer. It was when I first started getting, first started getting into punk. And Dead Kennedys were playing at um, George Washington University. And my dad lived right near there. And he let my friend Tony Clayman and I go to that show. As long as we were back by 11, 11.30. I mean, that was like, that's a good deal for a 12, 13, or even 14-year-old. I don't know how sure. old that was. So I remember going to the show... And it was like punk as fuck. And we were like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, this is so cool. This is so punk. I don't remember who was opening. I'm sure it was some amazing Discord band yeah. or other. Did you see Minor Threat or that was no, earlier? No, that was over by the time yeah. I got there. And, um, but I loved, my, I loved Minor Threat, obviously. And so um, we went to the show. It started so late as shows sure. do. And so it was 10, and then it was 11, and then it was 11.30, and Dead Kennedys weren't on yet. And um, we just stayed. And at about midnight, I see through this, like, sea of mohawks and spiky hair, this one, like, bald Jewish lawyer pate kind of making its way like a... Like a shark <laughs> through the water, and we're like, "Oh my god! Oh my god! Quick! Like move, run!" And so we're like we duck, and we're like, you know, there's a whole mosh pit or whatever was going on like then. And we're like, sort of like squirreling our way through and dodging and avoiding him as much as possible. Dead Kennedys are now playing; they're awesome. And um, and finally, he finds us and he grabs us. I mean, literally, it's just like a classic scene: like grab by the arm and like dragging us out, red with fury. And um, however many years later, when I moved to D.C. and was in Shudder to Think and whatever, um, this story came up with some Discord people. Like I was hanging out with whoever. I don't even, I don't even remember who it was. I was telling this story and they were like, 
no way. We totally, whoever it was who I was with totally remembered that some dad had come in and like dragged these little punks by the scruff of their necks out of the Dead Kennedy show. And um, yeah. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. He's a good dad. Yeah. He let us do it, and then he made good on his word. Yeah. And <laughs> now he like, can see, say he saw like, the dead Kennedys in their heyday. And, 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 and yeah. my dad totally saw dead Kennedys. <laughs> my dad actually, he took me to the Wax Museum. Remember Wax Museum? It was like a club. How old are you? I'm 37. So you might have missed it. It was like Wax Museum was sort of a big alternative didn't exist then. Anyway, the Ramones played there, and I was really? super into the Ramones, and my dad took me to see the Ramones. And um, he loved them because he really liked early rock and roll. And he really liked high energy music. And um, for years afterward, whenever I would whenever I would talk to him, you know, he would always try to connect with me through music, even though we had very different tastes. And he was more of a, a business head. Um, here we go. So how's the Ramones? Like good, they're dying. Most of them are dying. They're dying off. <laughs> Two of them are fighting. Yeah, they're fighting. They hate each other. They're miserable, but they're awesome. Oh my god! He's voting Republican. <laughs> At least one of them is voting Republican. Uh, do you guys have? Any, I feel like I'm really hogging Craig. Well, I have a question, yeah. sort of, about that early time of you guys and Shutter to think like he's those guys came out of classic like DC punk mm-hmm. rock. But as a kid listening to you guys, like, I didn't know what I was listening to. <laughs> That's really. good. Like, I think I bought your records because it was on disc- Discord. Sure. And you're just like, cool, I'll buy anything on yeah. the label of bands that I like. And then you hear you singing. Right. <laughs> and, like, math rock before that uh-huh. was a thing. Time signature changes. Like, was that very, like, conscious? Um, or did it just sort of happen? That's what you guys were influenced by? It. it, it that's such a that's an interesting question which i've answered before but i don't feel like i've ever actually maybe quite thought about it thoroughly before grow growing up in cleveland um and i think you'll vouch for this we took what we could get so there was no difference to me between rush and the sex pistols and the Bee Gees. It was all just like awesome music or right. terrible music. Um, and actually, I think it served me really... In, in retrospect, it served that served me really well in what I do now, where people ask me to do a lot of different types of music, and it just all kind of poured in in Cleveland, which was... it was kind of, Cleveland was kind of like a music drain. In the 70s in particular, it was like a, a proving ground for lots of new acts like of every uh, of every genre so and and you and you really had to know somebody or have like a cool older cousin or whatever to to be able to listen to punk or underground music so when i got to dc which was relatively cosmopolitan and um had had a had a i don't know sort of a sort of a fixed um character in terms of you know it's seen quote unquote kind of what it looked like what it sounded like you know it 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 
it was it was fully cooked and nothing was fully cooked in Cleveland. So I got there and, you know, I was much more interested in Cocteau Twins and Susie and the Banshees and X and um I don't know, whatever we were listening to at the time. Um when I got to Cleveland, so that that was how I was singing and I'd been I'd been singing in like cover bands. So I mean I was singing the Cars and Journey and the Sex Pistols and the Dead Kennedys and whatever else, all in one band and Black Sabbath. And so we were like, cool, great. It's all good music. And so that's kind of <coughs> what I brought when I joined Shudder to Think, which, you know, as I said before, like, like if you, at least on the first Shudder to Think record, Curses, if you swap my voice out with sort of a screamer, it's it's a kind of a hardcore record, a DC yeah. hardcore record. Um, but then the truth is that everybody in the punk scene was just a music geek, right? So everybody in Shudder to Think was into The Who and The Rolling Stones and, you know, The Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel and whatever. So I think once we got... I don't know, once we got to know each other and grew a little bit and became more confident in our, um, in our sort of, the, 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 the DNA of our tastes and sensibility, we're like, wait a minute, we can do whatever we want. Like anybody can go like, which is great. I mean, there's some amazing bands, but, but. I would say we were more interested in Bad Brains, you know, which also had that total, um, uh, I don't know, recombinant smush of different influences from jazz to progressive rock to hardcore to, you know, Sun Ra. Yeah. Um, So even though we didn't necessarily, even though we weren't necessarily mature enough to have those references, we knew that there was some kind of chemistry where um, there were there were little moments in rehearsal where we would hear things that literally just didn't sound like anybody else. We're like, oh, those are the those are the portals to kind of what we could be. And that's then, cool that you were able to recognize it at such a young age. Yeah, because I like I got into you guys through an older sibling mm-hmm. who was like, you know, you like this stuff, like check out this band. Yeah. You know, and uh, like I said, I really liked punk and hardcore, yeah. but I was always attracted to something more interesting. Like when I heard you guys, I was like, whoa. And like you mentioned psychedelic yeah. or like show tune yep, totally. and stuff like that. It's like, like Queen, pff, Love, yeah. you know, Broadway, yeah. bring it all on. It's pretty, pretty bold to do that at that time. I mean, in I that scene. I don't know if it was. I would say there there was a there was a self awareness to it, but there was also a couldn't help ourselves about it. It it really just kind of took over at a certain point, and from a very early age, I remember literally the my friend Matt Fields, who played in the band Caliphone for a while, okay, and and I think played in the band Texas is the reason for a while. Um, he was 
sort of the golden ear of our friends who had the cool older cousins with the Captain Beefheart records and, mm. you know, Tones on Tail records and whatever it was. Um, and David Wayne's dad was in radio in Cleveland. So he would come home with, um, you know, like pre-releases of Murmur by R.E.M. And we would sort of sit around and listen to him and be like, hmm, what do you think of that? I don't know. Um, so I remember... So David in his David's basement was basically a production facility. It had all of his mom's old like discarded clothing and wigs from the 1960s, a giant like beta cam from 5 years or 8 years, you know, from the mid 70s and the projectors. It, totally. Yeah. And it, like a two track reel to reel machine. Um and drum kit. And so David who was not terribly social at the time would just make weird videos of himself like dressing up and really no different than what he does now <laughs> just like with um a lot more downtime between, yeah, yeah. because there was no editing that really we could do or he could do and um and then we would have band practice there and like record songs and things and so um i remember a session a session it wasn't a session it was a saturday and so we were just hanging out making music me and my friend Matt Fields, and I remember at that moment, we were super into um, Tones on Tail and Dolly's Car and uh, like all the sort of Bauhaus offshoot, which were super arty and weird. And we were kind of like, oh, let's do something that sounds like Tones on Tail. And we, we made the song and I remember we both looked at each other because it, it didn't sound like anything else. It didn't sound like Tones on Tail or Dolly's Car or Bauhaus. And we were sort of like, whoa, that's really cool and weird and I don't quite get what it is. And um, that I remember that being like the first moment, which is a sense memory that I search for in whatever I work on now, where I'm like, if I get that feeling, I know I'm onto something that's, mm. that's new and unique. And so in that sense, I was really lucky. You know, we had this laboratory and there were some really unique... Um, kind of future visionaries in my crew. Um, but at the time we were just kind of weird. We didn't, I don't know that we got that we were kind of doing our own thing, but, but by the time I moved to DC, um, like I had that feeling in me. So I knew when something, when there was a light bulb moment, I don't know quite how, um, articulate or articulated i or we were about it it was just sort of like ooh, that that's like do that repeat yeah. that and then that just became shutter think mm -hmm. what was your kind of experience like with epic because i feel like that record it's so wild to me that it came out on a major label it's so wild to me that it came out it's <laughs> much more you. wild to me than it is to you in that seeing your videos on 120 minutes being like what i mean was there i still see those videos i'm like what like we thought that was perfectly normal would you did you i mean did you guys ever have moments where you're like is this too weird yeah or, yeah and then we we're like yeah it's too weird and like what, do more of it at what point did you decide like all right we're gonna see where they draw the line well it was interesting because um we had written a lot of pony express record before signing to Epic. So we were signed to Epic based on that material, which, um, you know, credit where credit's due. Michael Goldstone, who was our A&R guy, 
at Epic, he had signed Pearl Jam. So he was the golden boy. I mean, he's a wonderful A&R guy. He signed Pearl Jam and us and Rage Against the Machine. And he, he was great. Wow. Um, he still is great. He, he, uh, he runs, uh, what's it called? Mom and Pop Records, I think. Oh, yeah. And then he, he left Epic and I think to when DreamWorks started. So he's a really interesting guy and, and really smart. I don't know that he necessarily loved our music when he first started coming to our shows. But um, Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam was a fan of Get Your Goat, our last, um, our final Discord record, particularly the song Pebbles. And um, it was still one of my favorite songs to play. And um, so he started sniffing around and we were aggressively um, weird. You know, we were, because, because like what you said, um, we were playing for so many years for Discord fans doing very not uh, traditional DC punk. And, and the, for a few years there, Outside of DC, DC had already be, like loosened up and become pretty weird. But outside of DC, Discord fans tended to be like very male, very conservative, very hetero, and well, it was pretty like a lot of tough guy. It was really tough. <laughs> like, <laughs> and and our whole thing in Shutter to Think was, um, why? Like no wonder you're no wonder you're frustrated. Like you are all sexually frustrated because you're playing music that's only for boys and our whole thing was always like girls and gays like that's that's who we want to love our music because that's where the fun is that's where the romance is that's where the creativity is that you know whatever and so um no offense to like hetero guys i i we we all happened to be hetero guys but it wasn't um it just wasn't what we were interested in. Was and that like a backlash to the sort of like tough guy? I mean, no, I, I was always pretty like girly and flamboyant and, um, you know, uh, um, non-categorical um, from pretty early on. There was a lot of female influence, like my mom and and carol and uh you know there are a lot of women like so it was just you being you it was just me being me yeah and um and i think like once you like once you feel once you begin to feel free it's it's very tough to try and convince people to like no 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 we need to we need a verse and we need a chorus and here, this is our demographic and, you know, where, where, and, and everybody looks the same. It's just not as fun. And so, um, and, and music needs to be free, you know, it, it needs to make, it was always very important and still is, um, that music, that the music I'm involved in help people, um, feel freer and better and, more connected to themselves and to each other. So, so that was what Shudder to Think became. And we were young 
and we were very fuck you. So we really wanted to stick it to the haters. So we amped up these natural tendencies toward flamboyance, toward, um, you know, uh, surrealistic and, um, surrealistic androgyny and, um, especially in the early nineties after Nirvana became so popular, the mainstream became so conservative and so hetero with the whole grunge thing that we just, we just had a field day like sort of turning up the volume on the things that we were doing, which is what was happening when we were working on the Pony Express record stuff, which was when Michael Goldstone started coming around and coming to these shows. But what he saw as a good A&R person does was that our fans were like insane. Um, even Ian Mackay to this day, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fugazi had intense fans, but Shudder to Think fans were nuts we didn't have as many of them but um but it was all the freaks you know who didn't fit into like this or that and um it was like all the like future artists sort of and so um so he he michael really took a risk and um put some sony juice behind us for a minute um and threw it on the wall and then our weird ass videos were played on MTV <laughs> and banned in Canada. Do you know the story? No. The first video we made for um the first video we made, which was for the song Hit Liquor, was banned on Much Music in which was Canadian MTV, I think, for quote unnecessary cannibalism and necrophilia. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like rad great <laughs> there i mean you know when is it ever unnecessary but also there's no cannibalism or necrophilia well what's things. the categorical like what's the necessary amount um i mean it's all isn't it always necessary <laughs> I, I mean at least a little bit of it yeah and so uh and i love that that's the best thing you could do for a record those are, like two live oh, crew yeah. getting, totally was like the best thing you can do completely like, it's like, effect. <laughs> yeah and so um yeah so so i got a hand it to epic and to and to michael they signed us based on that material and then you know they put a lot of money behind it and when it didn't do as well as they needed it to do um to justify doing it again then the sort of typical traditional conversations you hear of like so you know that song, Closing Time? <laughs> we really need something like that, you know? And that was the point at which we sort of started thinking, oh, I don't know how long this is going to last. Maybe we should start doing film soundtracks. Because um, we were huge film buffs. I was doing music for the state. A lot of our friends were starting to make movies, and I had done um, music for a lot of my friends' student films at NYU, a lot of whom were also kind of involved with and came from the state crew um yeah and so it, so so it actually was a was a very fortuitous and semi-seamless transition toward the end of shutter to think into film stuff did you guys start doing that together as a group yeah, mm -hmm. or yeah the, uh, yeah our first movie um actually 
was a soundtrack called First Love, Last Rites, which are all these genre songs like um, an Otis Redding style song. So, and, and we got our friends and music, singer musicians whom we worshipped, like Robin Zander from Cheap Trick does this song that's a kind of a zombies-esque, um, you know, Odyssey and Oracle zombies-esque song. And John Doe from X, who was Shudder to Think sort of collective favorite band, sings a, um, you know, sort of high lonesome uh, country song. And Jeff Buckley sings an Otis Redding song. And Billy Corgan sings a sort of seeds-like, um, you know, nuggets, psych, punk song garage yeah Yeah. and so that movie first love last rights was made by our was the first movie by our friend jesse parrots who had been a roommate of mine who had played bass in the Lemonheads. um so it was all this really interesting people starting to grow up and find their find their niche um todd haynes was making Velvet Goldmine and I think off of First Love Last Rites asked us to do, because those were all genre songs, asked us to do, um, and, and because Shudder to Think was sort of at the end of our career was considered kind of glam, which, whatever. Because you wore eye makeup in one video. I, yeah, or, or something, or something. And so he asked us to do, you know, these kind of Bowie songs for... Um, for Velvet Goldmine, which is just an incredible soundtrack. Yeah. Still, I think. And um, and then we did the music for Lisa Cholodenko's first movie, High Art, which was like this sort of trip-hop ambient thing. And then we broke up, you know, and Nathan and I continued to do film soundtracks um, independent of one another and of Shudder to Think. When it comes to the What Hot 10 Years Later, I mean... Obviously, like, Paul Rudd looks like Matt Dillon. (laughs) Like, there's such a big grunge influence. I mean, what was it like for you to revisit that era having toured with, like, Pearl Jam and Smashing Pumpkins and those bands? Honestly, at first, I really was not that psyched about it. Really? I think back on that era as as kind of dark and sad. Yeah. Um, Well, I think that comes through a lot, particularly with Paul Rudd's character in the the new show. mm -hmm. I mean, that... I've watched all of this stuff yeah. numerous times, and I think I left that with like, oh, that's a really weird sort of note to end on. I mean, I know it's yeah. like when he comes into the restaurant, not, you know, spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> um, you know, for that character having been so silly, and you think back like in the movie, like the the uh, the tray scene where he just doesn't want to pick anything up. I like, know. To go f- on that journey with him is unusual. It is, and, and it is um, a bittersweet. Yeah. At best. <laughs> yeah. Um I mean it's ridiculous and hilarious, but it's yeah. also um I mean that's a classic character, right? The king of, the former king of camp who can't really get a job. Um but my own personal associations with that era not the discord years, but the the epic years, it, it was just it all seems very like muted and nocturnal. You know, and ultimately, like, um, we, in the band, there was a lot of corrosion and, and, and breakdown of really beautiful relationships and friendships. I mean, we're all good now, mm-hmm. but at, at that moment, it was just a bummer. Do you and think that was from 
going hard for so long and say yes to things or yeah well or i think a little bit of i think that um I think that once alternative or college rock or punk or whatever you want to call it hit big, um, that was actually the end of the ride, not the beginning. Right. Um, and then you have a lot of, you know, ego and fame and drugs and, and, um, again, it was, it was very, it was conservative and competitive and, um, not, you know, if, if, if my sort of highest, um, what, like my, my highest value in life again is to like connect to people to, or to myself and to others using music. Um, there was a lot of disconnection after everybody started getting record deals and started getting famous and, um, and that may have been my own ego, like the, the sort of through the prism of my own ego trip and like rock star, want to be rock star bullshit. But I think it was in the water and there was a lot of, not in my band, but around, there was a lot of heroin and there was a lot of um, disconnection. And so it just wasn't, I think of the mid to late 90s as like very nocturnal and and like a lot of bad, a lot of destructive, disconnecting behavior. Um, that's certainly not the case for everybody. But I mean, even recently, I've been thinking about it so much because Chris Cornell, who was a friend of mine, um, died. Um, he died a week after the 20th, 20 years, was it? anniversary of jeff buckley who was a friend of mine's death um and that was so dark um which was a week after or a week before tim from brainiac whom we toured with and loved and adored and who were like the new heroes kind of to us in fact when we were on tour with brainiac i think we were touring fifty thousand bc our last our final um studio album for epic and I just remember the second they took the stage, we were like, oh, we're not cool anymore. <laughs> like, these guys are fucking doing it. And, um, and I mean, within a year of that, you could see the kind of um, degradation that had taken hold. And then he was dead. You know, so it was really... I was talking to my wife the other day when we... And will you guys just, like, interrupt me if I'm rambling? Because, like, I can ramble. Yeah, no, this is so interesting. I'll interrupt to say that Brainiac should have been a way bigger band. Absolutely. (laughs) They were were, awesome. They were incredible. Did you see them live? Never. Oh, my God. They were unbelievable. And um, so I was talking about it with my wife the other day. Why did it come up? I don't remember. Oh, oh, because my... um, my film agent, I've always been a huge Nick Cave fan. And I don't know if any of you guys saw him on this last tour. I didn't. Did you it see was, him? No, last year. I saw a lot of Instagram photos of him, but I didn't actually see him. <laughs> it was completely... I've seen him like four or five times. Yeah, I mean, he's always great. Yeah. But this last tour, I think because of his son. Yeah. I like almost couldn't listen to the album. I know. Because it like... It was really dark. The thought of that yeah. just freaked me out. It's too much. Yeah. Are you a father? I'm not. Yeah. Did you see the movie? The I, I mean, it's just yeah. devastating. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yes. 
His um, stuff is devastating enough as it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's amazing, you know, yeah. when like the, the, it's interesting when the true devastation came in, as opposed to the like devastating character, it almost took it. I mean, it took the act out of it and then it's just like gorgeous, transcendent, like heartbreaking yeah. music. But this last tour was so unbelievable. I mean, it was really beautiful. And um, not that anybody should ever have to go to, that, go to have that happen to, you know, um, share this transcendent, to, you know, to, to be able to share this transcendent experience with an audience. But it was transcendent. And, um, and I found out the other day that my film and TV agent reps... Nick Cave and Warren, uh, Warren, Warren Ellis, Warren Ellis. and um, I love my I love my agents. They're wonderful guys. In fact, my main agent, um, the main reason I signed with him was because we bonded over the Faith Void um, <laughs> split Discord record, and I was like, "You're my guy." <laughs> and so um, the fact that any agent, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but but his sort of like uh, the the younger guy there now reps Nick Cave, and um, so I called him the other day and I was talking to him about how cool he is because of that, and then I got into a conversation with my wife about the Lollapalooza tour that Shudder to Think was on, which was ninety four ninety five, and to me that tour was sort of the um, the apex of. The, the 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 end it was like the end of the end even though everybody could not have been riding higher at the time commercially like on the surface but um who was on that tour it was, it was crazy it was beastie boys smashing pumpkins george clinton p funk um tribe called quest the boredoms um randomly like green day at a certain point <laughs> Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, uh, uh, Stereo Lab, um, uh, oh come on, Lab Cabin, California, um, Far Side, King Kong, which was like the split, a slint sort of spinoff band. Um, it was an unbelievable tour. Breeders, and um, Nick. Cave and the Bad Seas. It was still, I think, the first lineup. So, like, Blixa was still in it and stuff like that. And um, they were all so sort of handheld video cameras were new then. And and the Bad Seeds, I think, were they were, they all had video cameras. So they were filming everything. And um, I think the movie that came out of it was The Road to God Knows Where, which I've never seen. I've never seen that. But it's like one of those Nick Cave movies, and I'm sure it's great because he doesn't seem to be able to do anything wrong. <laughs> um, and so at the end of the tour, we were on the, we were on the, 
the small stage, the second stage, and all the cool people were... Well, no, not all the cool people. We were on the small stage. Stereo Lab was on the small stage. Farside was on the small stage. It was a great stage. But Nick Cave and the Breeders and blah, 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 were all on the main stage. We, our slot was always at the exact same time as Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. And we all loved them. So we would take these ungodly long pauses between songs. <laughs> be like, he's playing your funeral, my trial. He's playing from her to eternity. And then we'd do our, do our thing. And um, the last day of the tour, it ended in Los Angeles. And, and the Bad Seeds were throwing a party at the Chateau Marmont. And we were invited to like this Nick Cave party and we're freaking out. And um, we're so excited. And again, thinking like this is the beginning, not the end. So we got all gussied up and we went to the Chateau Marmont. And we got to this party. Um, and I mean... We weren't, we weren't total nerds, but we weren't ever the rock stars in that sort of live fast, die young way that, um, we were just like, we were nice, nice boys. And so, um, so we get to this party and it seemed as if half of the musicians there were all nodding on heroin, not the bad seeds. They had the radio cameras, right? <laughs> but like Breeders and L7, and uh, I mean, I, I shouldn't, you know what? I'm not, I shouldn't say that because um, it was a long time ago and I don't remember exactly who, but it was just, it had a very dark um, heroin, heroin, dr- yeah, heroin vibe. Um, and I don't mind drugs at all. But again, going back to the theme, if they're like connected, if they're connective drugs but heroin just isn't that and um, this party that we had been so excited to go to we just saw all these people whom we respected and in some cases worshipped and in some cases who were our friends and they were just like passed out and and we left after like 10 minutes we sort of looked at each other and we were like wow that's kind of that huh like that's we all know historically that that's the end of the thing. That's not the beginning. And, um, yeah, so, so I guess that's some of the associations that I have with the 90s. It's a pretty heavy-handed metaphor for everything going on, too. Exactly. Yeah. So how, when you were doing the Wet Hot stuff, I mean, did you kind of try to put that stuff aside? <laughs> that's where, that's where <laughs> it started. I'm so sorry. No, that, that was, was amazing. So that, I mean, that's what, yeah, I was curious about that. So, so having that experience, I mean, what was it like doing this, I so, guess now? So going back into it and, you know, I knew because the world that we created 17 years ago, um, demands writing period appropriate songs. And, um, so Teddy Shapiro, who, um, co-composed, I mean, I mean, in many respects, he was the main composer on the original Wet Hot movie. Um, although he and I worked together on everything. Um, but he and I wrote, you know, like Higher and Higher and some of those original songs. So we kind of set the table for the musical world of Wet Hot. And then um, I kind of took over for the TV shows. So when the 90s came up and I was like, okay, I guess I got to somehow go like go back. And at first I really I didn't like the way it felt. I didn't want to do it. Not the score. 
Like the score, the instrumental stuff was fine. It was the songs. I was like, I'm going to do like a Zach Orth. What's his name? What's Zach's uh, character's name? I can't remember. He's like, he works at Kim's video and he's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, JJ. JJ. Um, So JJ's working at Kim's video and there needed to be a song introducing him. And and I mean, it was my idea. I was like, well, everybody kind of needs to have their own 90s genre. And JJ, obviously, it needs to be grunge. So I was like, all right, here we go. And we had toured with Smashing Pumpkins and we're all friends. And um, like James Eha, um, James Eha and I actually just scored like a, a TV show last year, a pilot for a TV show last year. And his kids are going to the same school as my kids, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it's all sweet and groovy now. But um, I was like, well, JJ's going to get a Smashing Pumpkin song. <laughs> and it took about as long. Um, it took about as long for me to get over my freaked outedness about doing it as. So the song that I wrote took about as long to write as the song exists. I mean, I was just like, and it was just done. I was like, oh, hey, I know how to do this. And, um, and then it was done. I was like, this is the best. This is going to be so much fun. Um, but there were moments where I was like, I don't want to go back there. Um, what, were, what were the things? I don't know. Then, then it didn't matter. It got so fun and ridiculous because I was like, well... Ken Marino's character, I want him, I want to take like some original wet hot score and just sort of bell bib devote. Just, just give it a little new Jack Swain. <laughs> and so I did that for him. Oh and then God. it was like, well, unfortunately, there's going to have to be some spin doctors and blues traveler in there. Of course. Nice. So um, you know, what's his face? Miles' character, the the chef. Um I was like, well, he's gonna have to get some like white scatting. <laughs> and so everybody just got their own thing and then there was one morning i needed to make a song and um my wife has a soft spot for chili peppers and she walked in we needed an end credit song and generally what i like to do is take a piece of music that you've heard a little bit of in the episode and then make it an end credit song um and i had this groove that was for um Andy, Paul Rudd, and uh, Deek, Deek, I don't remember, Deegs, Deegs, the new king of camp. So the Andy Deegs baseball scene competition where they first start going head to head with each other. And the sort of groove, I I was retooling a lot of the score to just give it a little bit of like 90s vibes. Sometimes it would just be like a beat or sometimes it would just be a guitar tone. And, um... And I was like, oh, that cue, it's like a, it's sort of like a Jeremy, it's somewhere between Pearl Jam and Chili Peppers. I was like, I'll turn that into a song. And I was like, well, it's somewhere between Pearl Jam and Chili Peppers. It should just be an Eddie Vedder, Anthony Kiedis duet. (laughs) And so, (laughs) so, and actually there was one time when Pearl Jam played, I think it was Madison Square Garden and it was when we were still living in New York and it was after we had toured together and I went to the show and occasionally there were a couple times where I would come out at the beginning of a Pearl Jam set sort of covered up and start singing in my Eddie Vedder voice um, until people would start suspecting that maybe it wasn't actually Eddie and he would, he would come out. And um, 
And so there was a time at, I, I remember a time at Madison Square Garden, I did that. It was really, really fun. It was the only time I've ever gotten to sing there. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, I can definitely do like Ed. <laughs> and so I started like singing this Ed voice and I was like, well, now it needs a, because it was Blood Sugar Sex Magic <laughs> year, 91. Okay. And it was 10 yeah. year. <laughs> and so it was just like... Yeah. <laughs> so by that point, it was just like all bets were off, and it was the funnest thing in the world. But it took me a little while because it felt like, ugh. Yeah, I can imagine. So you live in Los Angeles now, mm -hmm. and I know you have a new solo record that's kind of partially about Los Angeles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How did you kind of end up out there, and sort of how did that record kind of come together? Because I know it's been a little while since your last solo record. Yeah, my last solo record was, I think, in. 2011 maybe even and all of that stuff all of that material was written in new york okay um and before i i before my wife and i had a kid so um so there was it was you know really a whole new life in los angeles um all, all of our friends it, it was not a tough move for me it was hard for my wife all of our friends had moved out there um a lot of my work was increasingly out there and I always loved Los Angeles. It was never a New York versus Los Angeles thing. They were complimentary. Um, but we moved out there when my wife was seven months pregnant. So it was a real shock having lived in New York for 20 years. Um, but I find it to be a very beautiful and strange place. And I would say that the topography sort of says it all it's very lateral and new york's very vertical horizontal and um it just all fed into this new record many of the songs for which were things that at least started as pieces that i was writing for movies sometimes people ask me to write songs for movies and they do or don't get used um there were a couple pieces that I had started writing for my friend Stuart Blumberg's movie, Thanks for Sharing, that wound up going into my, um, wound up becoming songs of my own. I remember I started those when I was on tour with Chris Cornell. Um, there was a lot of weird downtime in hotels, and so I would just, you know, write. And, um, and the, the feel of it, you know how California records all feel like they were made in California? Like, you know, Joni Mitchell records and, and even Van Halen records and Eagles records. Um, and Court and Spark by Joni Mitchell particularly was like, is a huge record to me. Um, it's one of those records that sort of changed, changed my music when I finally came around to it. So there's a lot of Court and Spark in it, even though it doesn't ultimately sound anything like that. And a lot of, um, frankly, I guess for lack of a better term, uh, midlife, crisis in it because i was in the middle of working on a lot of this material and finally decided to turn it into a record when i turned 45 and um i didn't expect it but the day i turned 45 it was like getting a baseball bat to my nuts i was just like wow <laughs> it's midnight it's not noon right because like it's not going i'm not gonna start having more energy <laughs> you know, more like fun time, late nights and like lots of new, I mean, lots of new possibility, but not in the way that I had always thought, not the way in the way that you think of it from like age 13 to 40. 
um, it was like, oh, okay, I guess I'd better like really prioritize and, and, and figure out what's going on. And all my friends are going through it or, you know, in their own way, my wife was seriously going through it. And, um, so that all just went into this record. And so it's, it's very surreal. I would say in certain respects closer to like, get your goat era shudder to think, um, lyrically, that sort of refrigerator magnet poetry, I guess. Actually, that's not giving myself enough credit. It's, it's very deliberate. It's not refrigerator, refrigerator magnet. It just sometimes comes off that way. Um, very acoustic. And I mean, I don't know if it's fair game to talk about on a podcast, but why not? I had, um, I had had my first experience with ayahuasca, which is a, um, is a psychotropic, like shamanistic, uh, um, root, uh, from South America that is, I guess the simplest way to put it is it's like 10 years of outstanding psychotherapy in six hours. I've done, I've done a few ceremonies myself. You have. So yeah. you know yeah. of what and, I speak. Yes. And I know like how difficult it is to sort of explain. Yes. It's very difficult to explain. And also it, it somehow feels almost um, sacrilegious in a way to talk about sure. it. And yet it couldn't be more, um, it, it it could not have been more of a seismic factor in my development and my kind of um, making peace with and um, getting underneath the midlife stuff. And that happened right around the same time as I was starting to prioritize writing this new record, which is called Adult Desire. Um, so what I decided, I was like, oh, I'm going to make literally the best middle-aged record ever. You know, and there are like a few great middle-aged records, but mostly they suck. Like Learning to Crawl by the Pretenders is awesome. There are one or two others which are just like weird, which feel like what they're describing. But most albums made by middle-aged people just feel boring. I feel like Neil Young, Harvest Moon. Harvest Moon is like an awesome middle-aged record. So beautiful. Yeah. And like perfectly middle-aged. Yeah, completely. Like, yeah. Some Jackson people, Brown had some songs like in the 90s that hit it, but not yeah, a whole album. Yeah, totally. Not whole albums. So I just went really deep with this record. And it's, um, and I, let, I literally just let myself do whatever I wanted. I really didn't care. Do you anymore. record at home? I do. do you, I have a studio in my, in my uh, backyard. And you play everything? And on, on this record, I play everything, yeah. I mean, there might be some drums by my friend Isaac Carpenter. And an arrangement, maybe by Jefferson Friedman or Jarek Bischoff, who are all members of my composing team, which is called Pink Ape. Um, so I'm sure there are other fingerprints on it, but for the most part, it's me just going off the grid. Um, and it was the first time since maybe Get Your Goat or Pony Express record that I felt in entirely worry free. I mean, I was, it was very important to me to make sure everything that I was in love with everything and that, and that I thought it was great, whatever other people were going to think of, of it. But I didn't, um, there were no outside considerations. I wasn't worried about selling records. I wasn't worried about 
A&R people. I wasn't worried about like making it palatable. And obviously like I want people to love it, but, um, so it was just pure sandbox. And, um, consequently I feel more, I don't have any insecurity around this record. I'm sure some people will love it. Some people will hate it, whatever. But, um, but it just feels, I don't know. It just felt, I didn't, I didn't feel like I was asking anybody else for advice on it so much. Like with other records, it was like, Oh, I don't know. Maybe I should make normal songs or maybe I should try and, I don't know, clean out my closet and, you know, get all these songs that I loved five years ago out into the world just because they're, they were my babies then. Well, it's also like doing what you do professionally. Mm -hmm. Like you probably just have so much content, so much material. I know just from what I do Mm -hmm. here, it's like so much material and content. And you're like, there's something that you love about everything a little bit. Right. Right. (laughs) And you're like, that's valid. Yep. Like, maybe I'll turn that into yeah. something. But I think it's going back to what you were saying earlier about, like, searching for that feeling. Mm-hmm. That young feeling yep. like when you're free. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, that's the thing, whatever that is. And it was so interesting connecting that to not being young anymore. It's cool. It was like, I mean, that's why I called it adult desire. It's yeah. just like a very pure, um, playfully grown-up exploratory album, you know, for my family, about my family. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I'll, 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 I'll send you guys a link to it. I love to hear it. I think it's yeah. really cool. And I'm making a whole um, album-length VR film to accompany it, wow. which I'm also excited about. That's wild. Yeah. How do you, um, sorry, Jonah. No, Dan, please. (laughs) That's the first time he's ever been nice to me. Um, (laughs) so you were talking about looking for that feeling and I would imagine that in some of your composing work, it's not about that feeling always. Right. So where's, how do you determine what's working in that world versus when you're writing for you versus writing for someone else? I always look for some kind of hook. Sure. You know, some kind of fall in love hook. Like I got to fall in love with it. Yeah. It might be like, there was a, there was a, do you know what pilot season is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So pilot season is lunatic. And I usually get a lot of calls to do a lot of pilots and there are some that I like to do and some that I don't like to do. Um, and I like to do different ones for different reasons. Like, there may be a pilot that I don't love, but there is somebody I love working on it or somebody with whom I have um, a pre-existing relationship and we just like to work together and so you just bite the bullet. But I always look for something. So there was one pilot I worked on, um, and I won't name names, this last pilot season, um, that I just couldn't find my way into. I was like, I don't know why I'm doing this. Um, so I decided, to, for some reason, I was sitting there with a guitar which is a lot of times how I start coming up with hooks for things, even though they wind up um, orchestral or, you know, piano-based or whatever. So I was sitting there with a guitar, and um, for some reason, it was the song, I think, In Bloom by Nirvana. It was those chords. Sure. It was some Nirvana song. And uh, I was like, I don't know. That just, for some reason, it just feels right for this, like, totally stereotypical, straight-up-the-middle um, sitcom. And, uh, 
And I was like, okay. Even though it was all like pizzicato strings and little bells, the, like it was very changes. Yeah. So this I is a like, theme song, or this is no the whole like score. Okay. I was like, okay. I'm gonna make the whole score based <laughs> okay. on Lean in. in Bloom. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Or and if that starts getting tired, I'll just pick another song off. Dream of you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so that became my hook, and it really made me like fall in love with the score and have like a really fun, like playful time with it. So there's always something. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Are you a trained musician? No, self-taught. I mean, I've had like little little bits here and there, but I, I was I was lazy, and then I was sort of on principle didn't want to know what we were doing in Shutter to Think because it was so based on kind of blind it might ruin experimentation. It. <laughs> it, yeah, no, totally. Yeah. yeah. Do you still keep in touch with like a lot of people from that Discord era? Oh yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I like I just feel like. I just have friends who have like sat on the front steps of the Discord house. Mm-hmm. It's like the closest I've like really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In fact, I've been um, talking to Ian Mackay lately because I just I I had desperately been wanting to find Ten Spot, Get Your Goat, and Funeral at the Movies multi tracks in because I want to remix them basically. Because particularly Ten Spot is so um, murky sounding. Were those tracked at the same studio that like all of those Discord? I forget no, the name of those. Uh, Inner Ear. Yeah. Inner no, Ear. we did. I think we did some of our first record at Inner Ear, and then we did some stuff later at Inner Ear. But I think because I remember listening again to your records and being like, it sounds like all those other records. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. But <laughs> it's totally. not. No. No. It, I don't think we did those at Inner Ear. We did them at a place called Black Pond. And then Funeral of the Movies was a place called Southern in Southern Studios in London. Mm. Um, but, you know, we, I mean, they, they have character and they have charm and they sound like they sound. But um, we made them in five days and they're not really, f- unlike some punk records, they're not really five day types of songs and arrangements. Like, there's a lot of detail. You guys had to be well rehearsed. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so Pony Express record and 50,000 BC are just like really well-produced rock albums, I think. And and it's not on anybody who was producing or engineering. It was just, we were just jamming through it. And, you know, we were like, I was a teenager. We sort of knew what we were doing, but we didn't totally know what we were doing. And it was that weird kind of late 80s, early 90s thing where people kind of lost the plot about how to make natural sounding records for a few years. Like, it wasn't quite 80s stylized anymore, and it wasn't quite turn-of-the-century, like, ah, we can let rock albums breathe again and actually record a snare the way a snare sounds. So I would really like to go back and just kind of dig out the naturalness of what we recorded. Um, And But I couldn't find the multitracks, and three days ago I found them all, like, stacked up in the back of a Shutter to Think storage space oh here God. in New York. And um, so I'm like back and forth with Ian being like, dude, I want to remix these. What do you want to put on? He's like, man, might not be such a good idea when he, when Iggy tried to remix Raw Power. Everybody hated it. It's <laughs> <That is> true. <laughs> like, yeah, but Raw Power isn't about like these weird, delicate songs. It's about, it's called Raw Power. <laughs> you know? <laughs> But I, I see his point, of course. Nonetheless, I'm going to take those and remix them. So I think I'm going to send them to Discord to like get them. Um, like Ian, Ian will keep them, and and yeah, hopefully Don from Inner Ear will transfer them and you know convert them. 
So yeah, I'm in touch with everybody. And in touch with everybody from Shutter to Think and actually wrote like a ton of new Shutter to Think stuff. Um, but we, I mean, just like parts, which was always the way we would work. It was like, here's a part, here's a part. You got your chocolate and my peanut butter. Do you think you guys would do anything else in the future? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody would love to. It's just Life. logistically tricky. Yeah. Nathan's in New York and Sweden and I'm in L.A. and Adam's in L.A. Kevin's like upstate New York and New Jersey. Stewart's North or South Carolina or something. So we'll just have to see. What I'd like to do and, and something that David, Wayne and I have been talking about over the years um, is doing... He he always wanted to do, he always wanted to make some kind of movie out of Pony Express record, um, but I think it would be really cool to create new Shutter to Think music that was the basis of a movie, almost in a sort of Magnolia kind of mm. a way, um, and then we could score it and really not not a documentary necessarily, just you know something narrative, having nothing to do with the band per se. But just where whatever new music we make becomes become the seeds of some weird new Shutter to Think movie. That's what I'm hoping. Those Which are all is my... sort of a callback to how you guys sort of left it too. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Now that we all actually love each other again, <laughs> there's been enough time and distance. Yeah. So that it's all music and movies, music and movies. Is there anything else besides those two things? Um, meaning like in life, in life, yeah. like any life. Stuff? Yeah. Is there any like? No, I, I mean like, what else is there? What else? Is, yeah. What else is there? That's what there I mean. isn't yeah. anything else. Yeah, that's that's kind of it. Like my family and yeah, it's all one thing. I don't even. I think increasingly, I don't even differentiate between any of it sure. anymore. I have uh, one last question. Yeah. It's from my sister, yeah. Vanessa, yeah. and she wanted to know what your favorite store was at Beachwood Place. Oh my god! I mean, <laughs> I mean, it depends what year you're talking about. <laughs> it was like Record Town, which Record Town, right? Record which Town, was yes. I, which was where I first got. I got a cassette. My grandma, Grandma Yudi, bought me a cassette of the soundtrack to the movie Times Square. Anybody? Anybody? No. It was awesome. It was the <laughs> final. It was the final nail in the coffin of. Robert Stiegwood Productions, RSO, who did all the Bee Gees stuff, oh, yeah, and they did, yeah. I think, Saturday Night Fever, and they okay. did Grease, and they did the ill-fated uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club yeah. Band starring the Bee Gees, um, and they apparently wanted to make, like, a punk film, hmm. and... Um, like Quincy. What? Yeah, the Quincy like punk. Quincy punk. Yeah, yeah, like the Quincy <laughs> punk, punk episode. And so, um, he made this movie, you should watch it. Because it's awesome. I will for sure. I'm going to watch it tonight. Yeah. <laughs> watch it tonight. It's called Times Square, and it's about two runaways. One sort of Joan Jett-esque, like street urchin, and another um, spoiled Connecticut girl who runs away from nice. her, you know, her lawyer dad. And they become this weird performance art duo, kind of punk performance art duo, called the Sleaze Sisters. And they go around, and they sneak into people's apartments and throw their TVs off the roof <laughs> in Times Square. And Tim Curry um, fr uh, from Rocky Horror yeah. is like the local DJ. <laughs> and he play and, and he, it, it, sort of like a la Warriors, he sort of helps them oh, do I their Sleeve Sisters thing. But the soundtrack is incredible. And in Cleveland, when I was like 11 or 12, speaking of just getting mana anywhere you could it had um grinding halt by the cure 
um, Take This Town by XTC. Uh, Nothing lasts forever. What's that Roxy Music song? Same old scene. It had talking heads. It had all this stuff I did. I, we just didn't have access to. Um, I Want to Be Sedated was on it. And some Joe Jackson. And so Record Town. You know, it's so crazy. Do you remember this? If you got, I got Bar Mitzvah in Cleveland. When record, what's that? Where? I got Bar Mitzvah at. What was your shul? <laughs> well, I started, out, I started out at Fairmount Temple. <laughs> right on. And then I ended up at like the Temple branch. The Temple. But for my Bar Mitzvah, you would get Record Town had these like tokens, mm-hmm. like gifts. They're different for like yeah. coins. Yeah. We had one in Jersey. I remember. You, you had a Record Town? I, yeah. I didn't know it was a chain. Did I didn't either. Where did we have one? Yeah, it was at the Short Hills Mall. Oh. Yeah. I, and I bought. I remember I went in and I bought the first Body Count album with Cop Killer <laughs> in the long before box. They it. Before yeah. they pulled it. Nice. Like I bought it and it had a parental advisor. I was like, oh, this album's awesome. Yeah. That's so funny. I love yeah. it. Just another quick reminder, our Patreon account is up and active. You can go check it out at patreon.com slash track and also via our website. All right. Uh, thank you so much to Craig Wedren for coming by. Um, check out his brand, brand new solo album, Adult Desire. Uh, just came out. It's very cool. Um, thanks, can't... Stephen, for sitting in on that. I'm sorry I missed yes, it. Yes, thanks, Stephen Swiss. Thanks mm. to Stephen Grywalski and Pulse Music. That's what I was talking about. Oh, I thought you were talking about Steven, Steven. <laughs> it's a little confusing having two Stevens. Right. Um, but. Steven, Steven. Yeah, thank you to. Stephen. And we've also had a band on the show called Steven, Steven that's thank made you up. Stephen. Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> I, Steve, Steve, I guess, I don't know. We'll figure it out. And of course, thank- Stephen works at Pulse Music, who we need to thank. Yes. Thank you to Pulse Music, um, located on West 29th Street. Um, if you need to do music, they have a beautiful studio there where they let us do the podcast, and we're very thankful for And if that. you need music for your podcast, they've got a lot of composers there. I'll bet they can do something original for you. I bet you they could. I never thought about hyping that part of it. Yeah. Like, you know, that's what Stefan does. It is. And uh, my, does original music. Yes. And my friend Julia Piker also works there, and uh, she does music. Everyone there is super friendly. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice place. It's a good deal. Uh, check it out. Um if you want to donate money yes. to us, yes, Venmo at Off Track. Venmo Off Track. It'll say Brad Worrell is who you're sending it to, but trust me, it's going off track. Yes, and you can also PayPal us uh, through our website, goingofftrack.com. You can also uh, leave us a nice review on iTunes for free. It just takes a couple minutes, um, and it makes us look legit. Yeah, uh, which would be nice. What else? Uh, Go to soundwag.com. Check out my new releases. Ch- Check out Brad's got, uh, The Worried came out a couple of weeks back. It's from friends of mine. It's a full-length CD. It's pretty cool, hard rock. Uh, and hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I'll have some other stuff coming out. And check out my other podcast, Drifter Sympathy. Oh, yeah. New season just started on Feral Audio, my podcast with the great Emil Amos. And yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I'm good. I'm good. I feel good about this. Uh, yeah, thank you again so much to Craig for coming by. Check out... Check out Shudder to Think. I actually hadn't listened to them that much. And after this podcast, went back and listened to it. And it is like, it's very cool. It's Some of this stuff is super weird. Yeah. But it's really interesting. And I feel like it's aged very well. Just my opinion. What do I know? I'm just a professional music critic. So <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. But yeah, thanks to Craig for coming by. Thanks for everyone for supporting the podcast. And we'll be back next week. Yeah.